Namo tasa bhagavato avahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami There was a, a full moon up, or very close to the full moon as I came in this evening. It always inspires one to uh, do the Buddha's bidding, to be able to practice according to those teachings which the, the Buddha left for us, uh, as one should do if one has gone to refuge to any teacher. And the marvelous thing about the Buddha's teachings is that when practiced they do yield the results which the Buddha talked about. But the problem is not uh, with the teachings, it's the problem is that sometimes we tend to, to follow our own ideas rather than follow the teachings of the Buddha. We know the teachings of the Buddha but unless we really put them into practice then we uh, can just waste a lot of time and spend uh, a lot of our life in a monastery uh, without uh, producing the fruits which the Buddha talked about. And it's one of the inspiring things to be able to see those uh, fruits actually materialize in other monks and to see that the path being trodden and giving the results as in the Buddha's day, so in our day. But it takes each one of us to put into practice these teachings of the Buddha and not to neglect them for other teachings. We're Buddhist monks. The Buddha's our teacher. And so that if one feels that one should be wearing the Buddha's robe, one should be following the Buddha's teachings, and one should be ashamed of oneself if one doesn't follow those teachings. As uh, the Buddha said to us, even his little son, Rahula, that uh, not just with uh, body and speech, even with mind, if there's an unwholesome state of mind inside of you, you should develop the feeling of disgust and embarrassment and being ashamed that such an unwholesome mind state has arisen in your mind. You should not tolerate it, but you should make an effort that those unwholesome mind states will be abandoned, and so they won't last. And what are those unwholesome mind states the Buddha was talking about? You know, the states of lust, states of like desire for sensual objects, states of anger, states of stubbornness, not putting forth the due respect to the seniors in this community. The states of like that hard-mindedness which doesn't listen to other people, which prefers one's own views. These are unwholesome states and one knows these are unwholesome states. And one should do something to abandon these. Without abandoning these states, then one is stuck in just the, the lower realms of this path. There are higher realms of this path, there are blissful places in this path. 
there's enormous benefit to be gained from these Buddhist teachings. So don't waste your time just lingering on these small areas. Just while I was on a retreat that uh, for my enjoyment, I used to read the, the suttas, and uh, comes to my mind now the Buddha's simile of the quail, that these like small things of the monastic life, the small rules, they say that they are small, but like to a small bird, tied by a small rope, it's like an enormous binding, and that small bird will not be able to release itself from those small things. The bird's size makes that uh, small thing, a stout, firm, tough rope. And it's the same with some of the small rules which we have to keep here, the ordinary things of monastic life. Don't think twice about them, follow them. And then the Buddha compared that to a big elephant who is tied by a strong leather rope. But for an elephant, that's just such like a weak bond. You can just pull it apart so easily and go where he wishes. In the same way that those who are strong in this Buddha's teachings, these small rules and small things, they keep, they keep them. We follow them because it's what the Buddha asked. It's what the senior monks ask. And they're small things. We don't make a heavy rope out of them. And we follow them. And that way, that, as the Buddha said, they're not binding us. So we have to pass through these uh, infant stages of monastic life so we can go to the higher stages and gain the great fruits of monastic life. We train our mind. And the training of the mind is, is not an easy thing to do, but it gives these amazing results, these beautiful bliss states, and these beautiful states of release, where one knows that one was tied down before, bound, and now one knows one is free. And the bliss of freedom is greater than any other bliss which you can know in the whole of samsara. These are the things waiting for you. To be able to taste these blisses, to taste the bliss of release, either the temporary release of the mind in the, uh, the jhanas, or the full release of the mind in the magapala, the enlightenment states. You have to develop the qualities, the powers, the indriyas, which the, the Buddha talked about, to develop that faith and that wisdom, to balance those two. The wisdom, you may think you're wise, but have you got the faith, the confidence in the teachings and the teachers? And to be able just to do what they say, rather than think, no, this doesn't make sense, or uh, you know, I'll do it my way. Have one, has one got the energy, the wearier? Does one put in the hours? I, I don't mean just to sit there, but to sit there and put forth mindfulness and attention. You can sit for many hours, but unless one has got the mindfulness, the attention, unless one has got the, uh, the chanda, the desire to, to train the mind, to calm the mind, nothing will happen. I'll be just sitting there wasting time. The quality 
of the meditation is as important, if not more important, the time one spends meditating. But in the samadhi, as one really sustaining one's attention on the goal. Do you remember what this is all about? The, the goal for which you've gone forth into the monastic life. Keep that goal in mind. Keep the ideal of the purity of monastic life in mind. So if any unwholesome thoughts come up, whether it's of anger or lust or stubbornness, that they disappear almost immediately when they're faced with the goal of monastic life, with Nibbāna, with freedom. Freedom from those defilements. Keep that goal in mind. And to have the balancing of, of sati, of mindfulness. And sati, sati, mindfulness, is important in all aspects of monastic life. It keeps you aware of what you're doing and what you're saying and how you're standing and sitting in the hall, in the dining room, in the toilet, when you're drinking, when you're eating. And it reminds you as a monk what you're supposed to be doing. What are the rules and regulations? What is our tradition? What is part of wearing this Buddha's robe? The sati has to be developed in the ordinary things of life as well as in the, the meditative part of life. It has to be a thoroughgoing mindfulness because if the mindfulness is let go of in just the ordinary aspects of life and just one sits anywhere, one talks without thinking, without restraint, and one just does things with, let's say, the, the, uh, the thoughts of a layperson. Another suit which comes to mind is a simile of the elephant, the forest elephant. They have to take the elephant out of the forest and cure it of its forest ways, its wanton ways. And as a monk you have to take you away from the house, away from the village, away from doing things the way you want them to want to do it, to cure you of those tendencies. It's the training which is essential but which we should try and get over as quickly as possible to get to the really juicy parts of monastic life. But don't be stubborn and linger in those early stages. And if one has got those uh, forest habits out, as it were, the worldly habits, the forest is where the elephant dwells, the untamed elephant, then the, the household life is where the untamed worldling lives. You're monks. You come here to be tamed, to be perfected. And it's possible, and this is what's offered to you here. So we have to develop that mindfulness, which is always overlooking what we're doing. One of the problems with mindfulness is we don't extend it fully enough to all aspects of our daily life, nor to all aspects of our mind. We've got blind, blind spots, blind spots in our daily life where we should be applying mindfulness but which, where we forget to. Blind spots in our meditation where we should be applying mindfulness but we don't. And that's why this part of our mind we never see. Part of the mind where the defilements live, where they have control now, 
and they will not let you see them because in seeing them that you're halfway to overcoming them. So to develop the mindfulness in all aspects of your life from the time you first gain consciousness in the morning until the time you go to sleep at night until your last breath before you fade into the sleep state. This is the training which you'll find in the suttas. It's a training which the Aryas talk about. And it's not to be disregarded. If you disregard it, then the higher parts of the training will not be uh, reachable by you. They'll be out of your grasp because you haven't laid the foundation develop that constant mindfulness. It's not that difficult, too difficult to do. Lay people can do that, you're monks. As you develop that constant mindfulness in the daily life, you'll be able to develop the mindfulness as you meditate. So you know what you're doing and you know what you're supposed to be doing. That mindfulness illumines your mind and as you develop the mindfulness stronger and stronger, you see much more of what goes on in this thing which we call the mind. And when we practice meditation, willpower is not enough. You may try and try, you may exert enormous amounts of effort, sit through pain, sit through frustration. But what's more important, I'm not saying that Willpower is not important, it is important, but what's more important is, is wisdom power. To be able to see what's going on in the mind. Why is it that even though one has the aspiration to calm and quieten down this mind, to refine it, to clarify it, why is it that this is one's goal? and one exerts the effort, why is it that sometimes it does not work? It's part of the job of mindfulness to uncover those faults in the mind, the places where there's a blockage, the places where the things go wrong. And one of those areas which you'll be able to uncover is the working of what the Buddha called the asavas this beautiful term which the Buddha coined, the asavas, like another use of that word, is like sap coming out of a tree, pus oozing out of a, of a boil. It's the outflowing from where? From your mind. And you can see that while you are meditating, if you put mindfulness in that area, Instead of the mindfulness going to uh, the goal, the, the, the aim of those asavas, instead of the mindfulness being concerned about where all this is leading to, turn the mindfulness backwards into where all this is coming from. Not the destination, but from the origin. Why is it that the mind, as it were, sends out these asavas? to all of the six senses. Why is it that these asavas go out to, to hear these sounds, to look for these sights, 
to attend to these smells and tastes? Why is it that he goes searching around the body for some ache, pain, itch to disturb itself? And why is it when the mind is reasonably tranquil, it sends its arsers out to start thinking about past and future fantasies, dreams, the endless territory of the thinking mind? Why is it that it's going in those areas? See these arsers, these outflowings of the mind. Because these in particular stop one gaining the tranquility which is necessary for both insight and serenity. Then you will see that the arsers are coming from this point inside the mind we call delusion or illusion. The Buddha said of the asavas, he described them as in four areas, but I want you to point out first of all what the, the root meaning is, the gut feeling of these asavas as you observe them in your meditation. You see, whenever the mind moves out, if you know the home of the mind, the center of the mind, it's very easy to, to see this. But for those of you who haven't yet gone to the center of the mind, haven't got to those, those deep bliss states, then perhaps you will not know just where they're coming from, but at least you can see them after they've left their home on their way out to disturb the world. See the mind moving out. See how it goes to, to search out something to distract itself, something to do, something to control, something to make. And what's it making? It's making dukkha. But see where it's coming from and you can start to get some idea of the origin of the, these asavas. That awija, the basic delusion that something needs to be done. That now when you're meditating, you have to do something more, change something more. Basically that you have to do something, coming from the the illusion of ego, self, I, me, mine. One always comes back to that basic illusion in this Buddha's teachings, the awija, the illusion of self. When there's a self, there is possessions of the self. There's something you think you own, you perceive you own, you feel that you own, and that's where you will exert your control. This way of meditation, it's a natural path. Let go and just allow the sun to set and to peace to come over the horizon. Your job is just to watch, to set the, the mindfulness in motion, set the mind towards stillness, serenity, to rouse the, the feeling of letting go, abandoning, renouncing, renouncing the whole world, renouncing as much as you can. Whenever you see something, renounce it, reject it, abandon it. Not just objects of the senses, but subjects of the senses. The source of the senses, reject, abandon, give up, let go. Let go of the source of the asawas. When you follow the asawas, when they go out into the world, 
then they lead to this papancha, this proliferation which can go on and on and on forever, or it seems. And what do you get? You just get confusion, a tangle of ideas, a tangle of opinions and views. You're not going to the source. You're not going to truth. And as one sees the work of the asavas, as they in four areas the Buddha called them, the Kamasava, Bhavasava, Awijasava and Ditasava. Uh, the first one that seems to be in the Buddha's teachings is the, the Asava concerned with finding pleasure in the realm of the five senses. And it's amazing just how often the mind actually goes out looking for something to delight in, looking for something to find pleasure in, whether it's in food, whether it's in uh, sights, seeing pretty women, pretty men, seeing beautiful sunsets, hearing wonderful sounds, hearing interesting sounds, interesting conversations. This is all the delight in the senses. If you don't give those things up, you're lost as far as gaining the goal is concerned. You cannot gain jhanas and have interest in the realm of the senses at the same time. In fact, even if you play around in that realm of the five senses, in the karma loka, it takes a while before you are able to get peaceful in the mind. I remember Ajahnana sort of telling me, I think last year, just how impressed he was with the simile of the, the uh, making fire with two pieces of stick, where the Buddha described that if a person comes along wanting to make fire and he finds a, a stick which is in the water and which is full of sap, no matter how long he rubs it, he won't get fire. And so just like a person living in the world with thoughts of sensory desire, then this is a realm of the five senses desire then it's impossible, it cannot happen that he gains those liberations of the mind which we call the deep jhanas. It cannot happen. No more than it can happen, you can produce fire from a wet stick. And you say, suppose another man comes, around, comes along and he finds a stick on the bank next to a river but still full of sap, still wet inside. As it could be sap, it could be moisture. The simile seems to be that because it's next to the river, it's only just been like taken out. It hasn't been fully removed. And such a stick too, you cannot get fire from it. It's just too moist. In the same way, if a person has only just recently, as it were, left the realm of the five senses, if you've been thinking, if you've been indulging, if you've been chatting along, it's almost impossible you can sit down and expect the mind to get the bliss of enunciation. It doesn't happen that way, no more than a stick just taken out from the water can produce fire. But when a person comes along and they find a stick a long way away from the river bank, which has been a long way away for a great length of time, which is dry, dry as a bone, which has been dry like that for a long time. 
and such a stick you can make fire very easy. In the same way that once a monk lives a long, long way away from the world of the five senses, has renounced those five senses for a great period of time, who lives in his mind, not just renounced next to them, but renounced a long way away, then such a person can attain the jhanas with ease. Sometimes we pick the five cores of sensual pleasure up and play, them, play with them for a while and then put them down again and then think we can gain the jhana. You have to remove yourself from them and keep yourself well clear of them for a long period of time. The jitter, as it were, dries out from interest and concern in the realm of the five senses. So much so that the mind inclines away from that world. The asavas do not get generated which go towards that world. It's been a long time since they've played in that area. They just forgot and they don't even know the way to that area. The mind inclines to the Nekama Sukha, the bliss of renunciation. And this part of the, the practice of refining the mind, of gaining serenity and insight. One has to know, have the insight, have the wisdom, the jnana, to know the difference between the, the sensory world, the karma loka, and the happiness therein, and the nekamasukha, the bliss of renunciation. You are a renunciant. You've given up a lot already. Just give up the last vestiges of the worldly life. You're in a halfway house. Don't just keep one foot in one door and one foot in the other door. Take both feet out of the world of the five senses. Put them both firmly in the world of Nibbana, in the realm of renunciation. Renounce these things. Don't get concerned with them. You know, someone was talking to me earlier. Please excuse me, the person who told me this. They were thinking of going to, to India to see the, the four, they call it Puchaniya Satana, the places worthy of worship. It's a marvelous thing. I hope every one of you goes to the four places of worship in your mind. The first place of worship is called first jhana. The second place, second jhana. The third, third jhana. And the last place of worship is fourth jhana. Worship those holy places because it will be for your benefit and well-being for many a long eon. Those are the Puchaniya Satanas, the places of worship and the teachings of the Aryans. Because going to those places gives you great benefits, not only in the moment, the Dittadame Sukhavihare, just the, the happy abiding here and now, but also it gives you at the very least the wisdom, the experiential knowledge of what happens when you renounce. You get your first reward from monastic life and that reward once tasted will get you 
interested in seeking more and higher fruits of renunciation. One sees that the, the mind going out to the, the world of the five senses, seeking delight, interest, fascination, satisfaction, in sights, sounds, tastes, touches, feelings, worrying about the food, being concerned about what you eat, going along the tables, looking and touching and even sniffing, which is gross. You're a monk. Get out of the habit of sniffing food. Put it in your bowl and eat it. Just, if it tastes rotten, that's just Vedana. That's just sensation, feeling. Nothing more. Dukkha Vedana, Sukha Vedana. Soil is. Just don't make a fuss and bother about it. If you are concerned with what you eat, about, I'm talking about the taste of what you eat, then you'll be far away from being able to enjoy the tastes of jhanas. These are the little things in the world, but if you do this now and get rid of this attachment to the taste of food, then there's so much more happiness and joy waiting for you afterwards. This karma loka, karma sukha, it's, the Buddha said it's a low pleasure. It's a gross, a coarse pleasure. It's to be feared, the Buddha said. Be afraid of this world because it just gets you stuck in this uh, being overly concerned about whether it tastes nice or doesn't taste nice or what, you, what food goes on what, whether it's enough, and whether they made enough. Leave all that aside. Because if you do renounce, then you weaken the karmasawa, the mind which goes out to seek delight. And it means that when you start meditating, you'll find the mind won't go wandering away. That wandering is the, the asawas going out looking for something to do. The restlessness inside the mind. Are you restless? Can you just stay in your hut? completely content without needing to go for a walk around the monastery just to see what's there or go down to the office and see what's there to read or get on the telephone and talk with your friends are, are you restless? what is that restlessness? it's just the work of the arsehole is just going out Without mindfulness, you don't see this happening. You get caught, and the arsehole become a habit, creating suffering and a lack of freedom for a long, long time. So one sees the work of those arseholes, and one says, no. One goes, but why do I want to do this? And one goes instead towards the origin. One goes into the mind rather than away from it. One develops the, the feeling of contentment, being inside, being at home, not wanting to go out, and there's more than enough pleasure at home, inside the mind. When you can get free from the karmasawa, the journey of the mind out seeking for something to do in the realm of the five senses, the meditation becomes very easy. 
the main reason why you don't stay at home, the main reason blocking you from serenity is gone. So, I advise you when you meditate, when you arouse sati mindfulness, to see if you can see the workings of the karmasana. And don't follow them, but trace them back. Where is this coming from? And see that it's just coming from illusion. Illusion of thinking there's something to be gained in that realm. There's nothing to be gained there. It's futile, it's empty of anything really worthwhile. All those dhammas need to be abandoned. Let them go. There's other dhammas need to be abandoned as well, but these certainly should be abandoned early on. And you'll find that mind will become tranquil, you'll become peaceful, you'll become one-pointed, it will become blissful. It will do it by itself. Samadhi nimitas will come, they will grow, you want to enter them, one will be blissed out with them. All happening naturally because there's nothing stopping it. One is going inwards rather than outwards. One of the other asawas is the dit asawa, the asawa of ditti, of views and ideas, opinions, one's own particular understanding of the Buddha's teaching or what one thinks the understanding of the Buddha's teaching is. Leave these things alone for a while until one's got some experience. Put them aside as maybes, because unless you've experienced these deep meditation states, all these things are speculation. Until one has truly experienced Magal and Pala, these are the Enlightenment states, and this is just ideas and views. It may seem right, but that's just what illusion does. The person who's drunk really thinks there are pink elephants flying, but it's just illusion. Be careful that did Asama. Again, it can involve the mind the mind actually going out to form these ideas and views. And you can see that it's a movement outwards, outwards from the reality. You know which is, you can't explain the reality of the chitta. Just go into it, experience it. And one thing which you will know from experience, well, one view which you can be certain of, is that letting go, renunciation, liberation, freedom is the path towards Nibbāna. Whatever ideas, views, opinions, methods there are in the world, I always test them by the Buddha's teaching to Pali, that whatever leads to Nibbida, this uh, revulsion from the world, the viraga, dispassion, the road to cessation, to the ending of things, not the starting of more things, the ending of things, to upasamaya, which is the quietness, the stillness of the mind, the samadhi states. If right view is there, it does lead to jhanas. Actually, that was in one of the Kosambi Sutta, where the Buddha was talking about the qualities by which like a, a noble one can be discerned if that right view leads to peaceful states of mind. 
then that must be right view. Does the right view lead to jhanas? Or is the jhana still blocked? To upasamaya, abhinaya, to clear knowledge, this powerful clarity of the mind which comes when one is freed from these asavas. The mind knowing the mind. Upasamaya Binyaya, Sambodhi, the Buddha knowledge, the Nibbana itself, the going out of the asavas, their extinction, their snuffing out. The Ditta asava needs to be known. And the other asavas, Awi, the Bau asava, the, the asava of just existence, the mind going out just to be, just wanting to actually affirm something, doesn't need to do that. Just stay at home. You can be all you want there. Of course, I mean, what happens when the mind stays at home? It just sees its nature. There's just something arising and something passing away. There's nothing there, it's empty, it's void. Once one can see this, then the asa will start to stop. When the mind doesn't go out, when it doesn't flow outwards, when its energy isn't wasted up in the external world, when it stays at home, one realizes the most important thing to guard in this monastic life is this, this serenity of mind. And only grudgingly will one go out into the world to do one's duties as a monk. But one's inclination will be always to go in the opposite direction, to the Dhamma, to the source of things. That serenity and quietness within the mind. These asavas need to be known. The Buddha described the asavas in the same terms as dukkha, to know the asavas, to know their cause, to know their ending, to know the way to the ending of these asavas. The way to the ending of the asavas was just the Eightfold Path. But, you can know them very clearly if you develop sati in deep meditation and just see their working. And you can know that when they're overcome, the mind gets very still and very peaceful. And when it gets still and peaceful, you can see very clearly the freedom states, the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of letting go. Once you know the asavas, once you've abandoned the asavas, then you're an arahat, fully enlightened. The mind hasn't got this habitual habit of going out and entangling itself in the world. The world of the five senses, that's just all it is, just a natural world which you know has got nothing to give. Someone leaves it alone mostly. Just something which arises and passes away just like everything else. Not me, not mine. And the awijasawa, the asawa of, of illusion. As if the mind is going out and entangling itself up with a web of deceit. And you can see that the source of that 
asawa, this, again the illusion of self. When there's an illusion of self, from that point of awija, it can go out and create these views, perceptions and thoughts of an I, a me. And I was saying earlier that sometimes the reason why we don't know is the mindfulness is, is strong enough but it's not wide enough. It doesn't go to those areas of our mind which, where it will uncover this illusion. Follow the asawa of illusion to its source. Follow the asawa of karma to its, of karma asawa to its source. Follow any of these asawas to its source and you'll find this piece of illusion we call the sense of self. That which you take to be me, the chooser, the doer, the receiver. That which the other asawas try to protect. As soon as you start going close, the asawas just throw you away, going outwards, away. Never going to the source with the strength of mind where the hindrances have been fully overcome, with a powerful mind you can swim up, upstream. The powerful current, the closer you go, which takes you away. You need to be very, very strong to be able to, to swim against such a strong current. The closer you get, the fiercer that current is pushing you away from the source. That's why you do need the strength of mind from something like jhanas to be able to go against the asavas and find their source, find this house builder, the Buddha called it, which has created these many, many lives and see it and overcome it. As soon as you see it, again, you're most of the way to overcoming it. And the Buddha's teachings become clear the Buddha's instructions become clear and you become one who is doing those instructions, completing the Buddha's task, overcoming, eradicating, abandoning those things which should be abandoned. Instead of looking upon Buddhism or this path as a way of just getting interesting ideas, interesting teachings which you can argue about with each other, and talk about. The person who uh, is worthy in this teaching is the one who can quieten their mind, is the one who can overcome these defilements which stop the mind being peaceful. It doesn't really matter what you say, it's what you can do which is important. It doesn't matter what you know, it's how peaceful you can be in your meditation, that's what counts. A wise person, a person who knows the Dhamma, is a person who can make the mind still, who can leave the world of the five senses and can go into tranquility, into peace, who can be the Santamuni, the peaceful stage, the quiet stage, sage. The measure of understanding is not what you can say, the measure of understanding in the teaching of the Buddha is just how peaceful your mind can become, how much it can let go of, how empty it can be.
So please look out for these asavas, especially when you are meditating. If when you are meditating you find you're putting in the effort but you're not getting results. If you find that the the mind is going away from the breath or if you get the samadhi nimitta, it's going away from the samadhi nimitta. Just put mindfulness in that area. The mindfulness which can investigate and just to see that this is an asawa at work, an outflowing, a mind going away when it does not need to. It may be coming from your sense of self, giving orders, interrupting what is basically a natural process of the mind stilling and going into silence. And from that point of illusion, the sense of self comes this wave which disturbs the whole mind and sends it backwards towards uh, disturbance, thought, uh, dissatisfaction, the lack of equilibrium in the body and the mind. See this and then it's easy to stop that asawa happening. Sati can be just that one step ahead of the arsenals. Just not let it get get going. Not get let this arrow be loosened from the mind. And then you'll find the states of serenity will appear in due course according to their nature. And you've also uncovered some of the secrets of the arsenals. This is some of the things which you can do in your meditation. It's uh, the full moon night soon, where the moon is up already. There's one month left of the retreat. This is the best time of the retreat, of the rains retreat. Two months have gone past. You've done the preliminary work. Now's the time, the last month, to use all what you've gained so far, all your efforts, all your contemplation, all of the inclining towards peace which you've been doing. Take this further. Give it everything you've got, both with effort and with wisdom. Because the, the fruits of this practice are just so superb and wonderful. They need to be tasted by you. They can be tasted by you. Taste them. Don't give up this opportunity. It's a whole 30 days left. Please put forth your wise and mindful effort and make these 30 days the best month in your monastic life. That's the end of this evening's talk. Has anyone got any questions they'd like to ask about? or comments about this evening's talk.